Good morning. My name is Kendra Gill. This morning our scripture reading is from the book of John. We are in a sermon series called Safe and Holy. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading John 2, 18 through 25 from the New American Standard Version. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem and at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I feel like the Seahawks are winning out a little bit over church today. Just, just a touch. God, we just lift these delinquents in prayer to you this morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Good to see you all here today. I guess all of you have TiVo and the rest do not. Uh, I want to put in a little plug before uh, I get uh, started on my sermon. I had the great uh, invitation and privilege and support of this church to go to a free wheelchair mission mission trip uh, this past summer, and we went to the country of Nicaragua, uh, based out of Managua, which is the capital of the country, and it was... um, I don't want to say life transforming, but it just, it, I think in many ways it, it touched me forever. And uh, it's the second poorest country in the hemisphere, uh, second to Haiti. And uh, to see that level of poverty uh, shocked my system. There are very few assumptions about what is normal and what's acceptable what is sort of the default level at which we can expect uh, to build life on, those things just were not there. Uh, On top of that, me, I'm just kind of a hygiene freak. And uh, if I'm going to sweat, I don't mind sweating. But if I just want to be, I don't want to be sweating. But as soon as we stepped out into the open air, boom, within seconds, you're just covered, coated with your just own moisture, and all day you're rubbing sunscreen on top of this moisture, and so by the end of it, you're just a caked-on mess. You peel your clothes off at the end of the day. Uh, There are a lot of discomforts, you know, running water and all of that, and on the very first thing that we did, we visited this little outdoor church, and these kids, these kids who have been sent by their parents to get their only meal for the day after the church service, they're sort of just surrounding us, they're hanging out with us, and a few of them really took to me, and um, I just, just kind of fell in love, and 
One of the girls gave me her portion of this cereal drink. And I just did not have the heart to say no. That I was instructed to not take food uh, because my body would not be able to handle the, uh, the germ combination that's in that food as opposed to what's in ours. And so um, I just looked at her and I prayed a prayer and I said, thank you. And I just gulped the whole thing down and she was so happy. And I had a few issues, but I was okay. <laughs> it was okay. It was, I think it was all par for the course. But the, one of the things that really broke my heart was that there were problems that you saw immediately. And as soon as you started uh, thinking about and then having conversations with the natives about how to solve that problem, you immediately saw that it was connected to each problem was connected to like 12 other problems. And so if you had to solve this one little thing, you'd have to address these 12 other problems, which are then each connected to 12 other problems of their own. And you realize most problems are embedded in the culture and in the system and in the history and in the way of being of people. And you just feel so helpless. And it's just country just begins to feel really dark. And then in the midst of this darkness, there was this one bright shining object and it was the free wheelchair uh, missions wheelchair because it's not connected to anything you just show up they do all their research they take down everybody's information they have follow-up and they present you with this wheelchair that's designed to work in a third world country not just for a month but forever because it's made a hundred percent of bicycle parts which they have plenty of And so these chairs can be repaired into perpetuity. And they all know how to do it. And it changes the lives of these people who are otherwise living literally on the ground or put away somewhere in the dark corner of the house because of the culture of shame surrounding disability because people who are disabled are not dignified. And so we would show up and lives would instantly be transformed. And I'm not sure if Jesus himself showed up and said a word and healed somebody, if that would be any more dramatic. The change was absolutely amazing. And today is the last Sunday of our fund drive drive for our church. Uh, We would love to... uh, buy more wheelchairs for the next shipment, the next container that's going out. Each chair costs about $77, and each chair you buy will be matched. Um, this, this is just not even through our it's just direct you would be buying it, and our church is just partnering with this organization to do that. But I know how Americans are. So for the first three people who sign up today, to buy at least three chairs. Look at you, all of you leaning in. (laughs) You're literally leaning in. Three chairs. We have a distribution partner in the uh, city of Managua in Nicaragua, and they, as part of their own fundraising for chairs and for the orphanage that they take care of, uh, they roast their own beans, fresh from Nicaragua. And I happen to have a few of these. Um, just a warning, these are delicious. And uh, they're not like American beans, which are, tend to be over-roasted. These are lightly roasted. So the coffee is a little bit lighter color. But here's what you would want to know, that the lighter the coffee is roasted, the more caffeine it actually has. 
I know we think darker is stronger, but actually lighter is stronger in terms of caffeine content. So I have three bags of coffee for this service and three bags for the next one. If you will buy three chairs, come up to me right after service. If you want prayer, go to somebody else. But if you want coffee, <laughs> come to me and uh, just tell me that you're, you're going to or you will. You have bought three chairs and I will hand, gladly hand you a bag of coffee. Okay, from our distribution partner, Joy Bean. Good? Got it? All right. <clears throat> what other good news could there be, folks? Should we just close it out here? Uh, we are in a sermon series that we are calling Safe and Holy. And what we've been saying is that safe, this idea of being a safe person, in, in its best sense, not in the sense that you're boring or that you're predictable or easily controlled, not safe in that way, but safe in terms of all things that are good about somebody who is a safe person. We have said that safe is a function of somebody who is truly holy, that truly holy people and organizations and cultures tend to also be safe. Uh, We have said that uh, being holy Therefore, then, it's not just being morally upright. It's not just about being a pious or religious or self-controlled person. But really, being holy is somebody who is not operating out of deficit. When they have interactions with you, long or short, they're not trying to get something from you. They're not talking to hear themselves talk because they have a need to be heard, but they are listening they're asking questions. They're able to, have, to be already filled and loved. And there's a security about them that allows them to focus on others, to see others, and to be loving, and to be engaged in serving the needs of other people. Another way to say that is that their identity and purpose are secure. They're not easily threatened. They're not on the defense That's what makes them safe. Their stuff isn't spilling over onto the people that they're interacting with or the organization that they're a part of. They themselves are okay. And this in turn releases them, sets them free to engage their surroundings and their relationships in a way that's actually life-giving and helpful. Another thing we've said, when somebody's needs are met and they're not operating out of deficit, in the midst of pressure and stress and fears and anxieties, they're able to maintain their own sense of self. Another way to say that is they don't crack under pressure. The integrity of who they are is maintained. They're able to keep the outside out and they keep the inside in. And the image that we've been using for this is the image of a ship. I'm going to skip it this week because I don't want you to get sick of it. It's coming back, though. <clears throat> a ship on the water, able to chart its course and then navigate through the water, through storm, through wind, through weather, without losing the integrity of its own ship. It's not taking on water. It's not being defined by the water but it's able to be in the water, but not of the water. It doesn't break apart. 
and maintains its integrity. And the quote is, an entire sea of water can't sink a ship unless it gets inside of the ship. And we want to be a ship that can safely be on water. And those who are on the ship are also safe because a ship can maintain its own integrity even though it's in the water, even though the wind is blowing and the waves are breaking on the side of the ship. It is okay. And in the coming weeks, we want to take this idea and apply it to various areas. And next week, we will look at the concept of intimacy. But this week, I want to talk about what somebody who maintains their integrity, somebody who is truly holy and safe, feels like, looks like, when we are interacting with them, when we see them from afar. What's the one word, I think, that would describe this kind of person, somebody who is safe and holy? And I think the word for us today is the word humble. I think about Jesus, and I see him as a person who, above many other things, was humble. I drew a lot of nutrients these last two weeks from a new author and speaker that I've discovered. And I'm so excited when I discover somebody that I want to read all of their stuff. Uh, His name is David Brooks. He is a professor at Yale, and he's actually currently teaching a course, as we speak, entitled Humility. And um, from a business perspective, what does it mean to be humble in a business context? He teaches at Yale. He's a columnist for the New York Times. He writes regularly for publications like the Atlantic Monthly or The Economist or The New Yorker, etc. He's a Jew by birth, and at the age of 25, he gave his life to Christ. He was speaking recently at a conference for philanthropists. And he was commenting on the question, what does the world and the culture really need from Christians? And in that brief talk, he says this, humility is at the core of it. Humility is a form of awareness. It is not really a virtue. It is a form of awareness. My favorite definition is humility is self-awareness from the context of other-centeredness. You're going to ask me after service. I'm going to say it again. My favorite definition is humility is self-awareness from the context of other-centeredness. Humility is having an accurate assessment of your own nature. It's having an accurate assessment of your own place in the cosmos. It's an awareness that you're an underdog in the struggle against your own sins. It's an awareness that individual talents are inadequate to the tasks that you have been assigned to. It's understanding yourself in the context of a greater divine order. Knowing you're not the center of the universe and you need redemptive assistance to complete your tasks. There's a lot of truth and depth, and I'm sure many of those phrases rang true for you. 
as those words hit your heart just now. What allows a ship to chart its course, maintain its course, and arrive at its destination, having accomplished the purpose for which it was launched, is the humility of the ship. It's the ship that is humble enough to know its own place within the vastness of the ocean. It has an abundantly healthy respect for water and weather. It has a strong sense of its own limitations, that is, its own identity and its mission. Taking itself and the context into account, that is self-awareness, it serves the purpose for which it was created by making its way. It serves the passengers. And along the way, it receives the help it can. And it gives itself to its own existential purpose. That, my friends, is humility. If you will know who you are, not more, not less, is what Scripture says. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But with sober judgment, know who you are and who you are not. Where you end, where the world begins, where you are strong, where you need help. I love when that happens. Timer starts all over again. If you can have self-awareness within the context of other-centeredness, that is humility. Imagine yourself to have self-awareness not just of the self, but of how others are experiencing you so that you can regulate yourself as a way to help better serve other people. That's true humility. Jesus said of himself, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I'm telling you today, that if you are able to be humble in the way the scriptures talk about humility, there is going to be a rest that comes upon you. You will have a confidence that does not come from arrogance or from striving or putting others down. Your will will be resolute and yet open to the will of God. You will be adaptive yet set like flint towards God's purposes for you. Others will experience you as strong and vulnerable. And you will have peace in your heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We have two points today. Set apart and made whole. Ready? First, set apart. Let me read this passage one more time, it was uh, really uh, painted a great picture of 
I think, Jesus' humility. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. I love this story. There are many, many, many stories that illustrate the same point, but this is a little bit more explicit. What I love is that in the midst of the pressure of the system that was in place in Jerusalem and beyond in Jesus' context, in his own very religious, hard, and set context, Jesus was able to differentiate himself as a Jew. Though born as a Jew, though born as a man, though born as a human being, he was able to differentiate and know where he ended and where everybody else began. That is to say, he never once caved in under cultural circumstantial or relational pressure. There were cultural pressures all around him. There were circumstantial pressures all around him. There were relational pressures all around him. There were also internal factors. There were his own feelings, his own will. And he was able to say, not my will, but yours be done. He had needs. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet, he was without sin. He never caved in, even to his own needs. We see this firsthand in the temptations of Christ, that he never met his legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. He never chose his own will over his father's will. And though he had feelings and temptations, he triumphed every time. Though people, though structures and powers put pressure on him, he always maintained his integrity. He was in the world, but never of it. And the simple way that the scriptures tell us that is that he did not entrust himself to them. The religious powers all around him, they never got to define Jesus. Jesus always defined himself. I only do what I see my father doing. It is my food to do the will of who? Will of God. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus Christ, walking this earth as you and I walk this earth, never was defined by his external or internal factors. 
He was always 100% set apart. This is the foundational definition of what it means to be holy. Jesus does not belong to this world. He is not a, he's not a servant of anybody else's will. He was never fickle. He was never shaken. He never caved in under pressure. He never had a moment where he lost his mind. Amazing fact about Christ. And Jesus looks at this temple, and in his mind, he's talking about his own death. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And these Pharisees, they think he's talking about this physical, literal building. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm talking about me. You have no power over me. You will think you're destroying me. You will think you are disintegrating me. But even through death, I will maintain my integrity. You put me underwater, I become a submarine, and I rise again. You don't get to keep me down. I rise when my father wills that I rise. And the only reason I went down in the first place is because I laid it down of my own accord. Before the foundations of the world, before any human being, Jew or Gentile, had a chance to determine my innocence or guilt and throw me up on the cross, it was already determined by my Father. This was all part of the plan, all along. He alone defines me. How can you sink a person like that? How can you control a person like that? You realize a person like that isn't safe in the sense that you can tame that person. They're safe. No, you're safe because they choose to be loving. We thank the Lord. He's not some cosmic killjoy who loves torturing us and playing games with us. God by nature is loving. And we are very fortunate that he is because we could not tame him if we tried. He is so holy, so other, so different. But he is safe because he's not bringing before us his needs. Jesus didn't die for us because he wanted us to love him. He died for us because he loved us. It was his love that sent Christ to the cross. And we, in response, we attribute worth to him. That's called worship or worth-ship. Because nobody else is like that. He alone. So Jesus, in Jesus, we see in the Gospels, in this story, a man who is completely self differentiated. And I want to give you a definition for self-differentiation because it's, it's not what you might uh, literally think. Self-differentiation is your ability to self-define, that is to have an identity, to self-regulate, that is maintain your integrity, and self-replicate, that is accomplish your purpose. And here's the really beautiful thing about what love is. And this is why it's not about behavior modification. 
as far as our deal is concerned. Okay, God's will for me, let me start with me, is that he makes me in his own image. I'm not made in my own image. If I talk about self-definition, I'm not saying, oh, Peter, would you make a decision already about who you want to be? Go find yourself already. No, that's not it. It's acknowledging that I am made in the image of God. That's already decided for me. I already have an imprint. It's hardwired. It's my total physical, spiritual, emotional, eternal DNA. It's set. And my own alignment is the process of developing my identity. It's, it's how I experience it. It's finding myself or being my true self or whatever human words you want to throw at it. But really, we're talking about what, uh, what's called the imago Dei, the image of God. And then as that identity is being formed, I'm going to now maintain that identity, that is, regulate myself in such a way that I'm not defined by the things that are not in accordance with that image of God. So we're talking about values now. If I'm somebody that values being poised or being loving or being caring, but there comes a moment upon which I lose my sense of true self, and that's called disintegration. I'm not being me. I'm not operating according to the image of God in me. Right? That's self-regulation. Jesus, even in the most crucial times, when you cut him, he bled scripture and he bled forgiveness and he continued to extend grace and love and power emanated from him. Even on the cross, he was able to save somebody. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's Jesus being his true self and not losing his integrity even when he's in great pain and anguish. Because pain doesn't define him. Anguish doesn't define him. He maintained his integrity until he said, it is finished. And then third, self-replication. This is a really interesting part. If I have an identity from God, and I'm able to maintain that, in, that integrity, that identity, then what I am doing when I love somebody, when I serve somebody, when I accomplish the purposes of God in my life, I'm not doing those things as an external act, but it's an extension of who I am. And that's precisely how God chooses to love and serve me. When God is being good to me, he's not like he's a bad person, but he's making a choice to be good towards me. He's a good person, and he is exercising his nature of being good, by being good to me. He is loving, so he loves me. He is kind, he is generous, or he's kind and generous with me. He is forgiving by nature. So when God is being loving to me or kind to me, he is being himself. That is, he's replicating himself. He's extending his DNA Towards me. He's expressing what is already pre existent and true about himself. And so we say self differentiation is the ability to self define, self regulate, 
and self-replicate in a sense that you are acting out of your original DNA in which God created you. We have identity, integrity, and purpose. And that's what Jesus is saying. Destroy this temple. And you know what's going to happen? I'm going to maintain my integrity, and I'm still going to accomplish the purpose for which I was sent. You think you can stick a spear in my side and nails in my wrist, and I asphyxiate, you know, I die on the cross, and you think that's going to stop me? No, that's just water on the side of my ship. Resurrection is not this thing that was way crazy off course for Jesus. That's what he was going to do. He was always going to live forever. He was always going to take on our sins and be raised from the dead so that he can make a way for it. This was his whole deal from the foundations of the world. What do you think about that? And that's why this is humility. It's not Jesus who is weak and insecure on the inside going, you know what? Let me show these little weaklings how a strong man does it. He's not strutting. He's not peacocking. Isn't that a great image, peacocking? <laughs> no. This is Jesus humbly, humbly walking the course. And there is such attractiveness. There's this magnetic power in them. It's, it's no wonder the world was gathered to him. How could you not be enchanted by a person like that? Because we have never seen anyone like that, ever. God so loved the world, he gave to it. He wasn't defined by it. He wasn't regulated by it. He gave to it because he was already so complete and full and living out his nature, divine nature as God. He was able to give himself. I, on the other hand, very, very different story. Very, very different story. For you, how self-differentiated are you? How holy are you? You know, I realized this week that whenever I do something that's pretty good, like, I feel quite proud of myself. And I realize it's because I'm surprised. <laughs> like, for example, on Saturday, I was pretty productive. Like, I finished my sermon, which is really good. I finished my sermon. I moved around furniture in my bedroom and cleaned the whole bedroom, did the whole setup thing. And then I set up the living room. It's a really productive day. And I was like, Susie, what do you think about that? She's like, you did pretty good. I said, you know, I did pretty good. And it occurred to me just as I thought that, that God never thinks that about himself. He's never surprised at his own performance. He's not like, huh, wow. Nope. Nope, not God. Because he is so integrous. He is being, that's it. I'm being good. I'm being productive. He's just, nope. He's just being. He is. And that's why God's name is I am. There's nothing beyond his identity. That's it. 
so great. But what about you? How's, how's that going for you? I realized as I got to the end of this point, I really, in my heart of hearts, I want to be humble. I want this self-differentiation, this kind of holy. I want there to be a matter of factness about me rather than all of the striving and the congratulating that I do or the failure and the disappointment or the... No, no, I, I want to be clear and I want to just be holy. And I realize he has to make me whole. What does it mean to be made whole? I think especially uh, health professions like mine are filled with folks who are called by God through their own areas of brokenness and struggle. You know, Jesus alone, I think, is saving others. All others are saving themselves. And I think that's what a big part of why I'm in ministry is about. It's me trying to find answers and hope for mostly myself. And I've landed on this topic of self-differentiation, not because I'm so good at it. If I was so natural at it, I would have no insight, you understand. I have an interest in it because of my own struggle with it. And it takes nothing for me to completely disintegrate as a person and lose my sense of self. This week, I was thinking about when I was in elementary school, as many, many moons ago, uh, my mom, in the, at the end of fifth grade, moved me out of inner city New York. And for grade six, just one grade, moved me to northern New Jersey, across the street, across the river uh, from the Hudson River in Fort Lee, New Jersey, right by the base of the GWB, George Washington Bridge. And then seventh grade, I was back. But I don't know what instinct she had, some kind of Amazing mom instinct, I guess. But during that sixth grade year, my two best friends, of whom I was the leader, they both joined gangs. And later on in high school, one of them, Jay, happened to be in my small group. And he sat next to me in small, uh, not small group, in homeroom. And we started talking. And he was telling me about what he's been doing. And that after that first week of school, he stopped coming to school. And then about a month after that, we heard an announcement over the PA saying that Jay was shot to death in a gang fight. And we were going to have a moment of silence for our dear fellow student, Jay. And then the other friend, he was in the same fight, but he survived. And he ran away to California from New York City to survive those chasing him. And I realized right when that announcement went off that if my mom had not taken me out of that situation as the leader of the gang, I for sure, I'm 110% sure I would have been part of the same gang. Now, this is not a God loves me so much story because God loves Jay too and Jay didn't make it. This is, this is me saying, I disintegrate easily. I would have been defined by the pressures and the stressors 
and the circumstances of that, of that year. It doesn't take anything for me to lose my sense of self. I remember when a great thing happened, like my first daughter was being born and Susie was going into labor. I completely lost my sense of self. I panicked so much. I fell down a whole flight of stairs. Some of you have heard this story before. And from the base of the stairs, lying on my back, I had to call my friend to come and take my wife to the hospital because I did not have the wherewithal to drive my wife four minutes to Mount Auburn Hospital. It's the most ridiculous story. It doesn't take much. It does not take much. And the question is, did Jesus ever lose his sense of self like that? No. There's no account of such a thing. I want to give you a definition for what wholeness is. And this is a great definition. This was quoted I, I, I try to find the source of this quote, but I cannot find it. And when I read so much, I can't, sometimes I can't remember where I got this. It was from a book that doesn't exist on the Internet, I guess. Here's the definition. The def- definition of wholeness is when the way of your being aligns with the truth of your being. Does the way of your being align with the truth of your being all the time? No. There is the image of God in which you are made, and then there is how you are functioning. There is the mood. There is the, oh, it's been really busy these days. Oh, I didn't get much sleep. Or I can't believe he did that. Oh, my job. We have so many modes of operation. And most of those modes contradict the truth of our being, who we are. But God's work in us is towards integrity, towards the alignment of the way with the truth. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, I read that, I think. I want that. I want the way of me and the truth of me to be the life of me. Wouldn't that be great? That's called integrity when there's alignment. And I want to, the the whole of my second point, I want to read to you from David Brooks one more time because his talk, his quote on this is so good. And he himself is quoting somebody else. But I think you're really going to like this. So I put it up on the screen. So follow along with me as I read. And so this is an achievement culture, a culture of people striving and trying to win success. The way I express this contrast, this hunger for success, is by two sets of virtues, which you, would, you could call the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues are the things you bring to the marketplace, which you put on a resume. And the eulogy virtues are the things you get expressed in your eulogy. And these are non-overlapping categories. So the eulogy virtues are to give courage, to give honor. What kind of relationships do you build? Did you love? And in my secular culture, we all know the eulogy virtues are more important, but we spend more time on the resume virtues. 
Another way to think about this is the book Joseph Slovichik, the great rabbi, wrote in 1965 called Lonely Man of Faith. He said we have two sides to, na- to nurture, which he called Adam 1 and Adam 2, which correlate to the versions of creation in Genesis. Adam 1 is the external resume, career-oriented, ambitious, external. Adam 2 is the internal Adam. Adam 2 wants to embody certain moral qualities, to have a serene inner character, a quiet but solid sense of right and wrong, not only to do good but to be good, to sacrifice to others, to be obedient to a transcendent truth, to have an inner soul that honors God, creation, and our possibilities. Adam 1 wants to conquer the world. Adam 2 wants to obey a calling and serve the world. Adam 1 asks how things work. Adam 2 asks why things exist and what we're here for. Adam 1 wants to venture forth. Adam 2 wants to return to roots. Adam 1's motto is success. Adam 2's motto is charity, love, redemption. So the secular world is a world that nurtures Adam 1 and leaves Adam 2 inarticulate. The competition to succeed in the Adam 1 world is so intense, there's often very little time for anything else. Noisy and fast, shallow communication make it harder to hear the quieter sounds that emanate from our depths. We live in a culture that teaches us to be assertive, to brand ourselves, to get likes on Facebook, And it's hard to have that humility and inner confrontation which is necessary for a healthy Adam to life. And the problem is that I have learned over the course of my life that if you're only Adam 1, you turn into a shrewd animal who's adept at playing games and begins to treat life as a game. You live with an unconscious boredom, not really loving not really attached to a moral purpose that gives life worth. You settle into a sort of self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve. You follow your desires wherever they take you. You approve of yourself as long as people seem to like you, and you end up slowly turning the core piece of yourself into something less desirable than what you wanted. And you notice this humiliating gap between your actual self and your desired self. Do you see a gap? I see a gap. But Jesus asked the question, do you want to be well? And I answer, yes, I want to be well. I'm not just tired. I'm tired of being this way. I want there to be integrity in who I am. And I want what I do and how I live to be an extension of who I am. I want to be able to chart the course for which God has created me. And I want the passengers on my ship to be safe. And I want them to know they can arrive at their destination as they chart their course. And I ask you, do you desire to be holy? Do you desire to be humble? Self-differentiation acknowledges your maker and in humility live the moments of your life according to his design and according to his will. Jesus says to us, 
if you want to follow me, you must differentiate yourself from the world. And he says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is an invitation not to trust in man, not to entrust ourselves to man or self, but in him who alone is the lover of our souls. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow our heads before you in humiliation and in desire for humility. We ask you to be on the throne of our lives on the throne of our personalities. And in the moments that we call our life, I pray, you would triumph and we would be holy. In Jesus' name.